Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. I would like to dedicate the talk tonight to uh, Upinya Zauta and U Aganyana, who were here last night with Ang Mo Win, who was translating for them, um, who, as I said earlier, uh, gave some enthusiasm <coughs> to my life. And um, aside from them speaking yesterday, basically we spent the day, uh, we started the day at the monastery, uh, Highway 400 in Finch, and then uh, they really wanted to go up the CN Tower. (laughs) (laughs) So we spent a lot of time um, watching planes take off on the island airport. And they just couldn't believe there was a restaurant up there. <laughs> um, they kept saying, what? What? <laughs> and then uh, they, they wouldn't leave Kensington Market. <laughs> this is like Burma. <laughs> We had a lot of good language moments. We were in a store and they were playing the Rolling Stones. And they kept saying, Mick, Mick. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Michael Stone. (laughs) The rest of the day, every time, you know, they started humming Rolling Stone songs, like, Michael Stone. (laughs) I had no idea. <clears throat> they were very interested. Uh, oh, then we spent time here and hung out for a while. Aga played with my son's Lego. <laughs> and then um, uh, Upinia was very interested in our precepts course. He was so excited by this. He kept saying, this is the Dhamma. This is the Dhamma. And um, he kept reading it and translating it. Um, and then uh, he said that one of the uh, main practices of these monks so he's been a monk since he was nine years old and um, 
uh, one of the main practices is once a week, the monks get together and they share where they've broken precepts. But they don't do this with the priest or any of the head teachers. They just do it together as friends. So they meet in small groups and they talk about, they go around and they talk about where during the week they broke one of the precepts. Maybe uh, somebody said something unkind or lied or did something harmful. Uh, and, they, and they share this together every week. They've been doing this for 30 years. And they even did it in prison. Um, and now they've arranged in Washington, D.C. once a year for them to all meet once a year. All the Burmese monks in North America um, to do this together as a practice once a year. But they still do this every week in their... They call it their monastery, which is a little apartment they have in Brooklyn, um, uh, where they're barely scraping by, actually. And um, um, this, is, he said, was the heart of his practice. And so I said, oh, well, that's what, that's what we're going to do. That's, what, that's the heart of our precept practice. And, uh, and people are signing up, too. I said, oh, good, good. <laughs> and I said, uh, do you have any advice for, for how or when people should get together to share about uh, the precepts? And the first thing he said is to remember that when they talk together about what they've done, there's no punishment. So you share with somebody one place where you've, you know, crossed a line, and that's it. They hear you, and that's it. Um, there's no punishment. Isn't that such a relief? Yes. <laughs> um, and then secondly, I, I said, you know, is there a really good time to do this? And he smiled. He said, Twilight. <laughs> it's kind of like pillow talk. <laughs> you know, when you lie down with your lover and finally, like, the lights are out, you can't see each other, and then you can share with them. <laughs> we'll be doing this Thursday afternoons, and we'll recreate Twilight somehow. Um, so, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit tonight um, about um, precepts in a more personal way because uh, three weeks ago I gave you the list of the yamas uh, not having the intention to cause harm um, honesty in body, speech and mind um, I translate not stealing as not taking what's not given freely wise use of energy and lastly um, not being greedy not being greedy and then last week I talked about some of the Buddha's teachings on how to live a contemplative life and we talked a little bit about karma we talked about uh, the natural sense of stress that one should feel when one recognizes interdependence
about not having a clean moral conscience. And so tonight I wanted to use a koan just to bring home this point. And this comes, this is case 12 of the Mumon Khan, which is um, a collection of koans, um, often called the gateless gate. And I like this term a lot. Um, Sometimes we're waiting for the big gate to open, the pearly gates or whatever. And this is recognizing that in our life, uh, there is no gate. Everything's the gate. Every moment is the gate. Sometimes in the Dharma, there's a saying, there are 84,000 doorways. Enter one. Just, just one. And wherever you enter, that opens up to your life. And um, a koan is often used, uh, in, uh, especially in the Rinzai tradition, where the teacher gives somebody a koan and they meet with that teacher every day or every week and express to that teacher the, the koan, um, which is a, a, a opening and traumatizing process, um, which is not how we're going to use this koan. A koan can also be used as a kind of public case to explore or shed some light on um, uh, a particular area of our life. And that's how we're going to, to use this koan. And what I like about this koan is that it's so simple. It's not fancy. It's not clever. Um, and like most good koans, you can't think about it. You have to just activate it. You have to become it. You have to live it in your life. So this is called um, Ryuan uh, asks a question or asks master and it goes like this is there someone knocking yeah, at the door? You, you can open okay. it, sure as long as you know they look credible okay. <laughs> every day Riwan would call out to himself master and every day he would answer yes sir Awake, awake, he told himself. And every day he answered, yes, 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 sir. Do not be fooled. Not now and not ever. Okay, okay, sir. This is the column. <laughs> every day, Riwan would call out to himself. To himself. Master... And every day he would answer, Yes, yes, sir. Awake, awake, he told himself. Yes, yes, sir. Don't be fooled by anything. Not now and not ever. Okay, yes, sir. <laughs> I really like this poem. <laughs> You know, the first thing I think of with this koan is this time of year. Um, I know so many of you are really busy, and you're at the max, you know, committed to too many things on too many boards, too many projects. Um, and then, uh, that's been going on since September, and then other stuff happens. A friend gets sick, 
a car breaks down. Um, I could, you know, knowing many of you, I could list a lot of examples where then our level of stress really starts increasing. And then there's this person who shows up outside of that, who starts telling us we're stressed. Does anybody have this person? So it's like you're really busy, and you're telling yourself how you're really busy. And then that person is stressed out about how busy you are. Doesn't have any good solutions, but just wants to tell you about how you're not um, involved in what you're supposed to be involved in. And that person's not helpful, because we can all be very busy and not be stressed. In fact, people I know who are uh, very uh, still are moving around a lot. And they're not stressed out, because they don't have this other person. So I think one of the things this koan really brings up for us is like how you check in with yourself. Master! <laughs> and, and this is not a joke. This is actually, I've done this practice. This is a really good practice, and I do it all the time. So during the day, once in a while, you go, Pat, Mike, Lori, Nicole. Yes? <laughs> yes, Master? Um, are you awake? Are you awake here? And I thought of this cone last night when Upinya was talking about being in prison, in and out of prison for 10 years total. And not just being in prison, but spending a couple years of prison in solitary confinement when uh, uh, the guard he was giving letters to to sneak out of the prison was caught. And uh, being tortured, <coughs> For those of you who, who have some psychology background and can pick it up, you can see post-traumatic stress all over their bodies in different ways. And what happens when you're in a cell? Who do you call on? Right? Where, where do you go to have faith? Someone asked a question last night, you know, um, when you were in prison, did you ever lose your um, faith and interdependence? And he said, no, exactly the opposite. And he described how, and he, he talked about this more later in the evening, but, you know, when he's a monk growing up in a monastery, he, he did some work and was aware of people's suffering, but he said that when he got into prison... And he really encountered, especially all the students who were in prison, who were really suffering in prison, many of them who were really sick. Um, other people's suffering was really teaching him interdependence. And for all of us, when we're caught in all different kinds of prisons, especially the ones of our own making, or just the everyday habits that we have, and then the stresses that come when we're not taking care of our unconsciousness. Then what do we call on? Master, master, yes? 
Are you awake? And I think what's really important about the story, because I think there's a way you can listen to the story and say, oh, he's just talking to himself. But there's another level here, which is that he's talking to himself in that moment. This is the self you've got now, and then it evaporates, and then there's a new one. And are you awake? Is each one of those selves awake? Or are there certain selves we have during the day that are asleep and then get caught? And that's the time we have to go into that self and go, Master, are you awake? I think some of you have heard this story before, but you know, a few years ago I was on a retreat, and um, it wasn't an easy retreat. And so I went to the teacher, and I I uh, went in, and the teacher says, "You know, how is it going?" And I said, "Oh, you know, I'm following the right." No, no, no. How is it going in your life? It's like the worst question to get because you know you have like ten minutes or less. <laughs> and he just says, "How is your life?" And then it's like you're aware of the time, you're aware of the pressure of the room, you're aware of the thousands of great students who have come before you, who had transformative experiences in an interview on a retreat. And you're not going to be one of them. (laughs) And then I started talking about my life and just talking about what was going on with some relational stuff that was really like I was really obsessing about over the retreat. And I'm talking, she's sitting, I'm going on. And there's a lot of, you know, feeling around it too. And then I look up and then she looks at me and she says, Ha! <laughs> and I said, Well, what? And I, I, I've never levitated, but I levitated. And, and I just jumped out of my seat. And this is a silent retreat, right? So you're really still. And, and I said, what? What was that for? In the olden days, they hit you, you know. And she said, oh, I've heard that story before. In France, Jacques Lacan when people repeated story, he would just end the session. <laughs> and, the, and, and he was famous for not having 50-minute sessions. You never knew when you worked with him when the session was going to end. And when you started getting into that kind of like uncreative, boring, like... Everyone knows this feeling. It's like, I've told this story before. And then you tell it. <laughs> and then Jacques Lacan would Okay, done. <laughs> See you tomorrow. <laughs> and the idea was to kind of startle you. you know? Jeff, Christiane, Master, are you awake? Are you awake? So two things, are you awake? And then also this self that should be awake right now and can be awake is awake and then is over. And then has to be awake in the next moment. So this is an ethical practice called satya, which means honesty. 
is really to meet each moment honestly. I think when we hear uh, the term honesty, we often think of, you know, um, just expressing ourselves honestly. But in, in uh, yoga ethics, the practice is honesty in body, speech, and mind. Being honest with our own mind. Being able to have real clarity of mind. Quality of your mind. What's the quality of your mind? And I think it's not that important to us until we're in trouble. Mm. And then until we're starting to spin in a vortex, a vacuum, or we see ourselves heading down another dead end. And um, this time of year, from Halloween to Christmas, there are a lot of potential dead ends. They're built into your genetic makeup. (laughs) You start visiting family. You start uh, going to stores to get gifts. You start, I know. And, um, and uh, there, there are a lot of potential dead ends there. And so you need to ask yourself, Lori, yes? Are you awake? Yeah. And then this other line that I love. Don't get fooled, not now, not ever. Don't get fooled, not now, not ever. That's heavy. Don't get fooled. When you, when you are not in tune with your life, you look out there. And it's really easy to get fooled. You know? It's really easy to get fooled. And this is one of the important uh, places where Sangha comes in. Because what happens when you practice with other people is that you start to bump into them. And you see them. And and sometimes maybe some of you come here and you don't know someone that well and then you're out on the street and you see them. And you know them from here. So then um, it reminds you about your practice. The monk said something really interesting yesterday. You had a lot of volunteers to, to help you set up. Who are the people who volunteered last night? Can you put up your hand? Petra, Lori, there's more. Marcella was there. Yeah, lots of volunteers. And he said, all the volunteering is really good for their practice because it keeps them in touch with the Dharma. I liked that. It's like just the number of hours you can have in the day where you're just touching the practice, touching the Sangha, touching the Dharma, touching Buddha, which is that, that inherent wakefulness that we all have. The person who's saying, yes, is the person who's forgotten. And the person who's saying, don't get fooled, 
is the person in us is constantly remembering that has this capacity for being alert and being clear and ultimately being themselves. Are there any comments or questions before I keep going? I just wanted to comment on how inspiring it was this last evening and tying in what you're saying now with um, just being exposed to someone that has suffered so tremendously and how it is so moving, but it's also incredibly inspiring into action and into being open. Incredible. Mm-hmm. So thank you for making that happen. Mm-hmm. And everyone here for being here. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, when you say that, sorry, that their bodies were marked with the post-traumatic stress, I mean, I, I found that compared to what I normally experience in my practice, that I mm-hmm. felt that the post-traumatic stress, stress was expressing itself completely differently because spirit uh-huh. was present. Uh-huh. And Buddha was present, uh-huh. and I found myself listening to the story and not hearing, in some way, yeah. sometimes the depth of what they were saying, uh-huh. because that faithlessness that often comes with mm. suffering. I've been, mm. pardon for the Christian imagery, but that feeling of being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, mm. because that wasn't there. I felt it was being expressed very differently mm. than what I mm. I witnessed. Yeah. How inspiring that is to yeah. to see that if faith remains connected, the the level of, I guess, transcending the pain is, is mm-hmm. possible and the suffering. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine being in prison and practicing loving kindness for the guards? I don't know how many of us could do that. Um, you know, many years ago, there was a, there were there were two um, um, uh, young men in Iraq. Um, who assassinated two American soldiers that they were holding captive? Does everybody remember this? It was on they. It was on television. Mm-hmm. They assassinated both of the soldiers on television with a knife. Mm-hmm. And um, so three days later, the Americans came and found where those men were staying, and they bombed. Uh, they bombed that um, uh, residence. And then they interviewed the father of one of the American soldiers that was assassinated. And um, he cried on CNN. And the anchorman asked, you know, uh, a question and then said, "I, I understand that it might be hard to talk about because you're so upset about your son being killed. He said, no, no, I'm upset that... Uh, more people had to be killed. That three days after seeing your son on television being assassinated, that the response you could have 
when you hear that the perpetrator was also killed, was uh, being uh, just as upset. That more people had to be killed. So what kind of quality of heart is this? Yeah. To bring it closer to us, it's like also practicing loving kindness to our guards mm-hmm. and our our perpetrators that mm-hmm. cause us to do all of our harmful habits mm-hmm. on ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. A challenge. Yeah. Yes. The link. Um, from the New Yorker magazine, which was mm. the series of photographs of the people in exile in Thailand. Yeah. The interview with one of the monks, he said, and there may have been uh, a challenge with translation, because mm-hmm. of course he's speaking in broken English, but he said, the Dharma is justice. Mm-hmm. And because we practice mm-hmm. the Dharma, we must yeah. fight against injustice. Yeah. And I'd never really heard it like that before. Yeah. That the Dharma is justice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to pipe in too much during the questions and answers <laughs> yet, yesterday. But I did make a point that maybe is worth repeating, which, which, you know, I think sometimes if you don't know the details of what was going on in Burma in the summer of 2007, it's really important that what was happening was that the government was kept raising fuel prices. And so people couldn't travel anymore. And grains couldn't move around the country. And then fruits and vegetables couldn't move around the country. And then people couldn't work. And it was getting worse and worse. And the people were really suffering. And they were stuck. And they were so scared. Because in the last revolution, so many people were killed and imprisoned. And so nobody would talk about it. Nobody would protest on buses, apparently it was silent. On trains, it was silent. Um, people were not working, and people were becoming uh, angry, but really holding it in. And so a monk's job is to take care when there is suffering and take care of the people. But they knew the people were too scared to step into any kind of revolutionary frame. So the monks started protesting, and they started walking in the streets. And for the first few days, the Burmese people didn't join them. They were too scared. And then as people started to join the monks, the monks didn't want them to. The monks wanted to march without the people because they didn't want the people to get hurt. They were putting their bodies on the line. And then, slowly, the people kind of insisted. And, you know, after a few days, there were over 100,000 monks uh, marching in the streets. This is a, a, a country with more monks per capita than any country on earth. And they marched in the streets and um, chanted loving kindness towards the government. And... Um, Many of you know what happened after that and and the violence that that, uh, erupted, but the monks never fought. And then when they got to prison, they continued the same practice. The same, and they're still doing it now. But the point is, it was active. 
It was active resistance, and the resistance, and they call it non-cooperation. Not receiving donations, not letting the government benefit from their actions. Not complying. And that's why I mentioned last week, you know, a lot of the, the Buddhist teachings around things like money kind of are designed to teach us about interdependence. Like not living in, I think we talked about this last week, about like not living in debt. <laughs> it's really stressful to live in debt. It's really stressful to get a education and to finish with a $150,000 loan. And secondly, um, to not deal with money that's come in contact with arms. Not investing in Canada savings bonds. All of our banks are all invested in yeah. arms. It's impossible. It's yes. really impossible. So the point is, and this is why I mentioned this, it's impossible. And because it's impossible, you practice. Because it's impossible, you can't end homelessness in Toronto. So you practice to end homelessness in Toronto. You can't satisfy all of your desires. I've tried. I don't know if you've tried. (laughs) So you practice working with desires. The Bodhisattva vow, which we're going to study in the precepts course, is to save all sentient beings. How do you save all sentient beings? is you realize there are no other sentient beings. That we're all interconnected. It's one sentient being in an imperfect world. And that's why we do this practice of checking in again. Checking in with each other, but most importantly first checking in with ourselves. Andrea! Master, don't get fooled. Don't get fooled. Yes, there was a hand up. Um, we've had a long conversation about this last night, and uh, that idea of what you just said about there, you just can't have a perfect practice. There will always be homelessness. There will always be injustice. Yeah. There will always be you know, <coughs> militant regimes. Yeah. And that idea of separating from the goal, but you still do the action, even though, is that like what we're moving towards? Because I think that we had um, some differences last night in our conversation where people were like, but the action's not effective. Like, they're not getting through to people. The yeah. government is still you know, being assholes. Yeah. So, and so they need to fix their practice so that it's more effective. Yeah. And we were like, that's such a goal-oriented Western way of viewing the world, is that what we should be aiming towards, being okay with the injustice and still doing the action? No. We're not, or just... I, I think there's two levels to it. The first level is not being attached to the goal and getting really clear about one's intention. Really clear about one's intention. For those of you seeing the Dalai Lama this week, this is what you will hear him talk about over and over and over. (coughs) Is having clarity of mind that you know what you're doing and that it's inspired 
to serve, that you're inspired to serve, um, but that you can't control what the outcome of your action is. It's called parenting. <laughs> you can't control what the outcome of, of your actions are. And that is so hard in uh, political work. And so I think if you also heard, you know, the monks, like, their intention is to reduce suffering. And they're also realists. They know that everyone is terrified of the government. And yet, they don't want to have any kind of violent response to the government. Because their attitude is that in the long term, if a group that is violent against the government to overthrow the government is successful, they will come into power and eventually be rooted in the same kind of violence. Maybe not to the same degree, but a way of using power that's not rooted in what they're calling democracy. And they had a nice point last night, which is don't forget that in the Buddhist model, democracy has been going on for 2,500 years. <laughs> and of course, there's some academic part of us that wants to go, oh, democracy, how are you defining that? What do you mean by democracy? <laughs> but, but, but actually, really, to, to, to listen to the intention. It's so different than how we think. You know? But I want to add one more piece about that, which is about us here in this room. What, what we call here center of gravity, which isn't really a thing, it's just a, a part-time thing. No, it's a full-time thing that's not a thing, that has something. Let me say it another way. The way I try and teach here is to not talk about goals. And to basically say, especially for those of you who come from a Buddhist background, um, to forget about the goal. To forget about the end point of practice. To, to let go of talking about practice as having an end point. And to really say, number one, what's going on here? And then number two, to look around and say, it's like if we're making a meal, if we're going to have a really great banquet. Do, I, I do the, I, my shopping habits are really bad, and I have to do this in my fridge a lot. It's like, what am I going to make? <laughs> and it's like that here. It's like, what are the ingredients? Let's look around and see what we can cook up together now with the intention being to serve but not with the intention of like a goal of building like a big organization and everybody getting enlightened and eventually wearing robes and then if you're a woman being reborn as a man and you know moving in that direction so so letting go of the goal and that's so hard because most of us the way we move through our life is our lives are very choreographed you know you even have iPods so that you don't hear the music you don't want to listen to. You can, you, can, you can have a soundtrack to your day. And if even one song is not right, you can just switch. Next song, you can shake it or whatever you do and bring the next song. And we have, we, we, we've lost surprise. You turn on the water and it turns on. Where else in the world does the water turn on right away? When you turn a tap, we wait for the hot... It doesn't do that in most places, you know. 
Your email doesn't work for a day? <laughs> yeah. So, I'm going to remind you you said that. <laughs> so, um, so this element, and, and I think actually even some of us, you know, and it might be hard to admit this, we actually like choreograph surprise in our life. Like, we make room for a little surprise. I'm not going to walk home from work through that path. I'm going to take the, that street over there. <laughs> Who knows what will happen? <laughs> But what, you know, and the people, you know, people that I know who are the most flamboyant and eccentric and, you know, they're usually the people who are sometimes the most rigid inside. You know. And the people that I know whose lives sometimes seem more disciplined sometimes are the people who actually are the most free in the inside. But you can't tell from the outside necessarily. So the inner practice that we're doing by letting go of the goal is to check in with the master <laughs> all day. Master, how are you doing? Are you awake? Are you squandering your life? And this is actually, you know, for those of you who come on retreat, especially, this is part of like the ritual in retreat of like, you know, when you come into a room, you bow. <coughs> Every morning when I wake up here, uh, I also live in this space. Uh, my son and I wake up together and we go over to the Buddha or to Kuan Yin and we light incense and we, we bow and um, uh, we, we ritualize things. Before you eat a meal, you say a prayer and the prayer uh, basically says, may, may, I, may I kill, may I kill so that I can nourish other beings. May I eat this broccoli with microscopic bugs that I can't see so that I can nourish other beings because it's imperfect. And if I don't eat other beings, then I'm not nourished. And then I don't take care of myself, and then I can't serve. And this ridiculous idea of other beings being like with organs. Other beings are grasses and wind and water. All that stuff we eat. You know, there's a wonderful, uh, uh, another koan, I won't get into too far, but there's a beautiful Japanese koan where uh, someone's dying and says to the teacher, isn't death just like being ice and then becoming water? And the teacher says, <laughs> and then the student says, well, how would you say it? <laughs> and the teacher says, it's just water being water. Like when you wash your face, you know, you can feel all the water in it. And when you're splashing the water on your face, you can first start feeling like how it's water against water. And then you can think about the root of the water to your sink and how far the water had to come 
to make its way into your hands and then into your face. And then you're, you're in interdependence. And there's no separation. And so sometimes we have these rituals or blessings or prayers so that we can raise what is so small up to like a cosmic level. So that we can see ourselves bigger than this like little atomized, hemmed in iceberg. Ice cube. (laughs) Barely an iceberg. We're like little (laughs) ice cubes floating in, uh, you know, tea. Yes. Uh, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're talking about, uh, we're thinking about, we're talking about loving kindness. And it's, yeah. it's like, uh, I mean, I don't know what it would like, what it would be like to live in prison. I don't know how I would react against yeah. somebody who would be torturing me. Um, and I think of loving kindness as unconditional love. And that's something that I'm focusing on in my own life. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, you know, if we talk about forgiveness, yeah. how do we forgive? How do we forgive? I mean, how yeah. do we forgive those teachers who have yeah. guided us down a wrong pathway, and, yeah. you know, or worse? Um, how do we relearn to trust in something or in someone yeah. to, to allow that loving kindness to flow <coughs> without feeling like I need that back? Yeah. You took something away from me. I want it back. Yeah. Like, master, <laughs> master. One end session. We ch- we check. <laughs> <laughs> we we check in. We we check in, and first of all, th- this term unconditional love. I don't know where who who coined that. You know. Jesus. Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, the Buddhist perspective is it's not unconditional love, it's conditional love. It's seeing that because everything is conditioned, um, we can't help but love. Because those guards are not separate than us. And if you really put yourself into the life of that guard, you would have some compassion. Because maybe if you grew up within the uh, framework and the grooves that got that guard into that position, you probably might have done the same thing. I mean, clinicians in prisons or in mental institutions who can't find the people they're working with in their own heart, they don't end up doing good work. Because it's always us and them. And then they get burnt out. Mm -hmm. So first of all, replace unconditional love with conditional love. Mm -hmm. That it's because of conditions that we love. Mm -hmm. And that the conditions are changing and they're interdependent. And like, we're going to lose all the people that we care about. We're already losing them. And then because of that, you are aware of impermanence. And then you have to practice forgiveness. But not consistently. So, like, sometimes you'll find in your heart there's the right conditions, and this person that's driving you crazy, uh, you can forgive them. And then, like, maybe uh, an hour, I mean, a week later, you, 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 you hate them. 
You hate them. And then the hate is when you go, Master, are you awake? And then you wake up and go, okay, there is hate here. And in taking care of the hate, forgiveness arises. But you cannot go, there's, I think there's like pathological forgiveness. Just like there's pathological altruism, which is reading stories of saints. And if you tried to live like that, you, you'd really be hurting yourself. Because most of us, we're not at that level where we can just forgive um, in the way we read about in books or hear as an ideal. So we have to be honest about our capacity for forgiveness and seeing where we can't. And then where we can't, that's where we bring in the koan. Are you awake? Don't get fooled. Some of us, we are fooled because we think the other person is the cause of our suffering. And sometimes we get fooled because um, we're trying to be good Buddhists. And we think we're really advanced, where we're really actually kind of sore. And we, we can't forgive yet. So and that, that's okay. So when that moment arises where you're trying to forgive and you can't, yeah. and you try to ask yourself to awaken that moment, it's like you're saying to bring some kind of softness to that yeah. awareness so that you can melt away yeah. whatever has caused that interference yeah. with did you see Upinya's face last night? He's so soft. He's so soft. John came a little late. They asked John if he would take them to Niagara Falls today. Did like kids. We had seen it from the American side, but they had never seen it from our side. And when we arrived, it was sunny, and there was, of course, a huge rainbow coming from the center of the falls. Uh, at one point, Pena rushed over to one of the, you know, the, the goggly things, the, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, he put, and he just like rifled through his pockets and put American quarters in. I'm like, no, no, you need a mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they're just like kids, like, like you couldn't tell that in in that moment, you know, you couldn't tell that he had had such a, um, you know, a, difficult. A difficult experience, an impossible experience, mm-hmm. and there was just today was just a joy. It's just like hanging out at Niagara Falls in the sun, mist, cool. taking photos like tourists. <laughs> <laughs> just it was really unreal. Um, great to, to have had that experience, and I wanted to thank you because I was thanking people who volunteered for doing so much work for the the evening yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm seeing the time and we're almost out of it. You're supposed to say, and you or I could die at any moment. <laughs> um, and I'm sure there's more to talk about and we will. I, we're going to work on this koan for two weeks. Um, but I just want to say one thing before we finish, which is just one detail about the koan I didn't tell you about, is um, uh, Ryu Wan, one of the, he, he was a teacher. And so he would get up in front of a room and he would give talks. And in Zen uh, tradition, where this is from, which is not really exactly what we're doing here, um, but in that tradition, the word for talk is one shout. And the idea in Zen is you never give a talk to share information. 
You give a talk to demonstrate the practice. Those of you who, who make art, you know, this is like the rule is show, don't tell. So what Ryuan used to do is he would get up in front of the Sangha and instead of giving a talk, he would just do this koan. So he would sit and he'd go, Master, <laughs> yep, <laughs> pay attention, okay, are you awake, really awake, yep, yep, don't get fooled, okay, yes sir, and he would do this for the whole talk. And apparently he did this over and over. This was the only talk he had. <laughs> I, wish, I wish my preparation time could be like that. And, uh, and supposedly people woke up. So um, I'm going to end by saying, can you take this koan into your practice this week? Or can you take this practice into your life this week? Or can you make your life this week this practice or can you make this week your life so that you're really awake and when the going gets tough some of you are spending time in hospitals this week visiting friends and relatives some of you are doing work um, in schools with kids who are uh, full of uh, corn syrup. <laughs> or something. Or some of you are, you know, visiting elderly parents or changing diapers or maybe going home to apartments and feeling alone and really being uncomfortable with that. And um, before you do anything to respond to what's going on, to ask the master. And use your own name. Mike, Monica, Petra, Grant, are, are you? Yes? And maybe try to do this for the first few days out loud. <laughs> yes? Are you awake? Are you awake? Yes, yes, yes. Don't get fooled by anything, anytime. Okay, Grant, okay. Maybe if you forget and you have a phone, call the voicemail. <laughs> Jacqueline, <laughs> Mary, <laughs> are, you, are you there? <laughs> Is anybody home? <laughs> and then you'll see that what's limitless, what's um, eternal, what's infinite, appears exactly right here. Right here. In this self that you're talking to. And this gets to the heart of the koan. So let's finish chanting. <laughs>